evening. So I said morning. It's, I'm just so used to saying morning. Um, it's great having you here tonight. My name is Thomas. I'm the young adult pastor here at Livingstone's Church, if you're not familiar with me. Um, let's do this. Let's, I'm going to have you stand again, just because not only want to work your soul, we want to work your body. So uh, let's, let's stand, if you don't mind. And if you have a Bible, uh, if you, you know, I'd encourage you to open it to this book uh, called Isaiah. It's in the Old Testament. And we're going to be in chapter 40. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one in front of you, sorry, in the pew in front of you, or you can take it from your neighbor, whichever is easier for you. Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah is known as what's called the prophetic book. It's literally the prophets of God would get messages and they would direct the message of God to the people. And uh, the, the Israelites, the people of God, were dependent on these words, what to do, what not to do. And so Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read uh, the first 11 verses there, if that's okay. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse six, a voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. And his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. Verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Jesus, I pray tonight that we would see our role in your unfolding story of salvation for humanity. God, I am just so interested in the idea that you could use ordinary men and women as you introduce and unfold salvation to people. God, your desire is to reconcile humanity to yourself. Lord, I pray tonight that we would get a richer picture of your love for us, and Lord, a rich picture of how you desire to use us. God, you are so good. Tonight, I pray that we would fall more in love with you, that we would leave thinking and acting and speaking more like you, Jesus. Amen. Before you're seated, how about you just shake hands with someone, welcome them here tonight, maybe hug them, give them back the Bible you took. Well, it's really good to have you, like I said, here tonight, and uh, Pastor Paul is so gracious to open the pulpit to some of us to preach, and every time he does it, I try to give you a bit of an insight to who I am. Uh, you know, I don't get to meet all of you, and you don't all get to meet me, and uh, maybe that's on purpose, uh, not from my end, and so I like to give a little bit of an idea of kind of who I am, and um, I'll be honest with you, I, I actually, one of my favorite actors, I, I think probably the greatest gift to my generation is Jean-Claude Van Damme. 
I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Maybe you've seen this current Volvo commercial where he literally does the splits. His two Volvo trucks, you know, go away. And, you know, as a young person, for some reason, uh, he was one of the first actors I was introduced to, which is probably a bad idea for a young child, by the way. But there's something about him. You know, uh, you'd watch these movies, and he would, there would be a clutch moment, and, and he would break into the door, break into the room, whatever it was, and you always knew that as long as he was part of the movie, things were going to turn out okay. Right, and I, I, for me, I always absolutely loved watching some of his movies. And, but every good writer that ever worked with him, every good director knew, uh, don't let him talk too much. One, because he's really hard to understand. And two, he's mostly good at kicking and punching things. And that's mostly it. I almost think that some of his movies are created by just putting him in a room, putting a lot of bad guys in the room, telling them to get out, and they just roll the cameras, right? And that's probably more of what, how they, they're directed here. And, but to be honest, as much as I like him, you know, and as much as I like movies, and as much as I like great stories, if you were to remove all the tension in the movie, if you were to remove, uh, you know, all the bad scenarios, uh, any one of his movies would have been really horrible. And you think of some of the TV shows we watch, right? How many of the TV shows or movies you watch, they engage you by what? By introducing a ton of drama, right? A lot of tension. Something to make you want to come back. They hook you some way. They want to give you some sort of issue, some sort of problem, and, uh, because they know that as long as they can get you, as long as they can keep it kind of a... Uh, an ending where you're not really sure what's going on, they know that you'll come back the next day to watch it, right? This is why, you know, some of the, the shows that we watch on TV today, they, live you with, they leave you with these cliffhangers. And so all throughout summer, you're wondering how you're going to make it because you don't know how they're going to start the next season, right? You're just waiting for it because they know if they can't add drama, if they can't add tension, you know, they've lost your attention. There's... there's no reason for you to come back. And I find, too, the tension creates room. It creates space uh, for a hero. It, it creates space for someone to come in and to fix it. You know, it's really interesting because, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm only 30. I'm not very old. But I do remember, you know, shows like Family Matters and others uh, that, you know, a lot of their issues were wrapped up in 30 minutes, right? You know, the, you, it would start with this, this great family, and then something would happen. And then by the end of the show, you know that you have resolve. And there is no, like, unending stories, but uh, it's funny how media has really changed over the last number of years. It's about creating so much, so many unresolved issues that it forces you to want to come back. But that's kind of the way it is. That's the way great stories are. And aren't we all kind of part of stories? You know, each one of us, we have our own story. We have our own backgrounds, and we have desires. We have wants. We, you know, you think about your future and what it would look like. We all come into story. All of us do. And I don't know if this morning, or sorry, this evening, you could think about a story in which you really like. And I bet you, whether it's a, it's a romantic comedy, or it's some sort of political drama, or if it's suspense, all of it includes tension. There's an issue to be resolved to get you to want to see what happens at the end. We all love stories like that. Great stories include great tension, and they create the possibility for someone to come in and hopefully resolve some of that tension. You know, one thing I've noticed, though, working with a lot of young people, and, and I, you know, I, I kind of see it in churches, and sometimes I can see it myself, too, is I think, and it's very sad, often we approach the Bible like it's Saskatchewan, like it's flat and nothing going on. 
right? We, we approach the Bible like there's, there's not backstory. We approach it like it's, it's minimal and it's just, you know, black letters on a white page. And, and sometimes we approach it not understanding that it's written by a God who I think is the master storyteller. You know, and instead of reading like Saskatchewan, I think the Bible is like a topographical map. It, re, you know, there's, there's, hills and there's valleys, there's ravines, there's, there's so much going on. There's political drama, there's, there's sexual drama, there is war, there's times of peace. There are places in scripture, I mean, no matter where you're at in scripture, there's a backstory, there's a context to it. But often we approach the Bible like we're coming into the middle of an inside joke and we don't understand what's going on and we're kind of looking, hey, what's going on? And we feel like the Bible's going over our head. It's, it's because... The way that God writes his stories, Rabbi Zacharias calls him a grand weaver. He writes his plot lines, I think, and he does it in a way to create tension, to introduce certain people. God is a master storyteller, and he's got a fantastic story to tell. And the story that I want to speak about tonight that, has, that is no exception to that is really the story of salvation. You know, last week, we presented and we talked about and we celebrated probably the most important date on the Christian calendar, Easter. The story of Christ coming and being among humanity and dying on a cross for my sin and for the sin of the world and then rising again. Listen, there's no greater story. And if you read the story of salvation, you got to know that it encompasses the whole narrative of Scripture. It, right from Genesis, right to Revelations, the story of salvation is included in the entire Bible. Everything's included in it. I love that story. And as I was thinking about it last week, and as the whole season was approaching, though I had a question this wonderful story, this wonderful story of, of a God who, throughout the Old Testament, was foreshadowed that the people that we needed a Savior, that they were longing for a Messiah, and then the story of Christ coming as fully God and fully human and dwelling among us, and then dying on a cross and rising again, and then the whole unfolding the New Testament to today. I had a question God, what is my role in that story? How do I fit into that story? Do I fit into that story? Into your wonderful story of salvation, what is my part in it? And tonight, what I want us to focus in on, and my, what, was really, uh, what I want to share was this. I firmly believe we have a very important role in how God unfolds the story of salvation to every human being. He's constantly unfolding it, and I do believe that we have a part in it. The passage that we read in Isaiah 40 is a really pivotal uh, mark in the history of salvation. It's one of those passages that a lot of the, the Jewish people, the nation, they would have looked back on, and, and it, was, it gave an indication of what salvation was going to look like, how it was kind of going to roll out. And uh, it has its backstory as well. And what I want to do is I want to go back into the history of salvation a little bit to show you that right from the beginning, God had planned a role for you and I as believers. He planned a role not for just us to receive salvation, but because of salvation, what does that look like? What do we do with it now? And Isaiah 40 is one of those passages where if you just jumped into it, it would go right over your head. And so I want to give a bit of a backstory. I don't know if you're like me, but like last December, me and my wife, we had a wonderful opportunity to go to Maui. And uh, 
I'm one of those people, wherever I go someplace new, I always try to find a book about the history of that place. I don't know why, but I just, for some reason, I just really like to understand what's going on. And, and that's what I want to do uh, a little bit with this passage before we jump into it. At this point in Isaiah 40, in the history, the Israelites have actually sinned a lot against God. They've made a lot of wrong decisions. They haven't followed the laws of God. And, and what had happened is they had been under a lot of captivity and, and a lot of sieges because they've literally walked out of the protection of God. At this point, those who believed in God, the Israelites, they, they thought that they were so separated from God that he had forgotten about them. They didn't care for them. That they have done so much wrong that there was no hope for them anymore as a nation. And before Isaiah 40, there was this story of how there was a lot of captivity. There was a lot of wrong that was being done. There was a lot of pain, and, and like I said, there was that lostness, and there was a desire for them to return to God. But Isaiah 40, it's like a completely different tone. There, there's, there's a change of tone in here that's introduced, and a message is given to the people of God. Within that tension that they're living in, God, God, have you forgotten me? Are you there? Within that tension, a message is given. And what the people of God are reminded in, and you'll notice in, in Isaiah 40, one and two, they're reminded of God's grace, of his character of forgiveness. And it's really interesting what he says here in the verses one and two. It says that your sins have been covered. They've been covered and paid for twice. It was initiated by God. And not only did he just forgive him of sins, it says, I have forgiven you more than you ever need to. And this is really interesting. The way that I try to understand it is I have a two and a half year old girl, Julia. And when she eats food, she, like, some of it gets into her mouth, the rest of it gets all over her, right? I know that when it comes to lunch and supper, I take her shirt off because she just lavishes food all over her face. It's, at the end of dinner, I don't know what she's eaten or what she's wearing. It's, it's one of those things where it's going, it looks like she really enjoys dinner time. Mom and dad do not enjoy dinner time. You know, the picture I get here is, is God saying, listen, your sin has been grievous, but my grace is bigger than your sin. And although you sin and you feel like you've done too much, I am gonna do more than enough for you. I am gonna spread my grace all over you. I'm gonna make you all dirty with my grace, or I guess I should say all clean with my grace. In the following passages in verses three to five, there is, again, this idea that God says, listen, you may have thought that I've forgotten about you, but I wanna remind you that I care very deeply for you. It talks about making the paths straight and the valleys and the lows and making them even ground. And he says, listen, I have come to care for you again. In the, in the next verses from six down to eight, there, the idea of his word being faithful introduced again. See, these people have been faithless. And, and the words that are spoken here, they says, like the grass and like the flowers. And they go to and fro. But he says, but my word will stand forever. See, the people of God have been very faithless. They've not followed God. But he says, even though you have been faithless, your God is faithful. Even though you've not followed the statutes of God, I want to remind you, the message is said to them that God is faithful to you. And the promises that he has made to you, he is faithful to complete those promises. No matter how far you think he is, he's going to do that. And lastly, from 9 to 11, you get this picture of him being a shepherd. It really is a picture of like a dad that comes to his kids 
gathers them together and says, I'm still your dad. I still love you and I care for you. What a change of tone that would have been for them, right? You know, at one point they felt like they were too far from God. At one point they felt like he didn't care for them anymore. And then a message comes forward in that tension. Their attention was grabbed. And a message was given that says, no, his grace is there for you. What a hopeful message that would have been to hear, right? But I want us to notice something in here. There's a common thread in this passage in Isaiah 40. There was a message of hope, but in order for there to be a message of hope, there was a messenger, there was a voice. All through this passage says, a voice calls out. There's a voice in the wilderness. Lift up your voices and say to Judah, Throughout this entire passage, from 1 to 11 and on, there is this idea of a voice being risen up, that there is someone saying and giving this message of hope to them. And that is really where I want to focus tonight. But I want us to look at this as that voice, that voice that it's speaking about actually alludes to two voices when it comes to salvation for God's people. And the first voice that we're going to notice, it comes about 700 years down the road. If you wouldn't mind, I'm going to ask you to turn to John chapter 1. And that's where we're going to kind of finish the night off, is in John chapter 1. 700 years, we're going to fast forward here a little bit. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to do it again. I'm going to give you a bit of a history lesson what's going on here. I'm going to give you a bit of the backstory because it's really important. Like I said, God doesn't do things just randomly. He does them very specifically. You know, like I said before, sometimes it's a tension we live in, right? Doesn't it make us want to, God, are you going to come through? Is something going to happen? And there's tension created again here. In John chapter 1, we get the story of Jesus coming into, he comes into the picture. He comes into the story to fulfill the promises, but what does he come into? At this point, the Israelite nation, the Jews, they've had many years of war. Things had not gotten better for them. There are stories of there would be peace, times of peace, and then there were times where there would be rulers who would take advantage of the fact that no Jew would work on the Sabbath. They just wouldn't. Even to pick something off off the ground, they wouldn't do. And so what a lot of armies would do is they would literally raid the Jews. They would raid them on the Sabbath knowing that they could slaughter them easily. And thousands of their army and of innocent people would be slaughtered because they knew they wouldn't pick up a sword. There's stories over and over again of, of there be peace. And, and here's the thing about the nation is that they were kind of demoralized at this point. And they really, they banked on the peace given by whatever ruler was ruling at that time. But here what we have, though, is a nation that's been times of peace, time of war, time of peace, time of war. It was a thin line of tension. If that didn't make it worse, at the time that Christ came in, in the time of John 1, the Greek culture was the, the dominant culture at this time. And they really believed in the power of man, that man was the ultimate being. It may sound familiar to you today. The idea where man is the ultimate, the ultimate decider in fate, that we need to do everything we can to elevate man to the point where there was a religious plurality. It was the idea where you can believe whatever you want to believe, you know, as, maybe that sounds familiar to us today again. And for the Jews, though, you have to understand that to them, they used to repeat to themselves every day what was called the Shaman. And basically, the concept was that we believe in one God and one God only. 
It made it really difficult for them to hold on to their identity because Greek culture made it difficult for that. But not just that, there was a division even in Greek culture. I mean, because they elevated man, if you were born poor, if you were born sick, you know, obviously the gods did not smile upon you. And it was very difficult if you had any type of ailment or anything like that. And it had permeated into Jewish culture. And so even the teachers of the law would lord over those who maybe were not people of the law. They would say things like, you know, if you have leprosy or any ailments, they would also say, well, obviously the Lord is unhappy with the sins of your father or your sins. And I like to call it kind of the Janet Jackson effect. They're one nation, but made up of many different parts. There was such division. The Greek culture had separated a lot of them. But if that wasn't worse, what you come into John 1, before John 1 or before Christ came in, there was 400 years of silence from God. To a nation that depended on hearing from God, 400 years they had not heard anything from God. I don't know about you, but if I text you and you don't text me back in an hour, I get pretty upset. You know, maybe some of you post something on Facebook and no one comments, you start unfollowing your friends, right? And maybe you've been in those conversations where you're talking and then there's that drop, there's that awkward silence. This was 400 years of awkward silence. They'd heard nothing from God. But not just the Jews, the whole world, they had not heard a divine voice for 400 years. Things were not going well at this time. And what you have here is Christ in John 1, what we read here is he comes into the story, into this tension like we read about in Isaiah 40. He comes in the midst of this tension and he literally begins fulfilling the message of Isaiah 40 and many of the prophecies made about him. You hear about his wonderful grace in this place where they thought that, God, had you forgotten about us? Did you lie when you said that? Is our sin too much? And I love the story of when the teacher of the law dragged the adulterous woman. Literally, from in the midst of her sin, they dragged her out of that bed. And I couldn't imagine what that woman felt like. Caught in the middle of adultery, dragged out into the streets. Who knows if she had kids? Who knows what type of family she had? But we probably do know that there was a desperation in her because she knew they had every right to stone her to death. They drag her out into the street. They bring her before Jesus and says, you know the law. What should we do then? And Jesus says, you're right, I do know the law. He says, whichever one of you have not sinned, you cast the first stone. I wonder what that woman would have felt at that point. What? I've heard stories about this man. This man who claims not only to be God, but people are saying he is the one that they've been waiting for. And he asks her, well, where are your accusers? Because they all dropped their stones at that point. And she says, they're not here. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And what he says there is, I have grace enough to cover your sin, but enough grace for you to live because of that. Now don't go sin anymore. And then he moves on and you hear stories of like the feeding the 5,000. An incredible story of God's care for them. Again, this nation would have thought, does he care about us for us anymore? You got to think about those who didn't have much. God, am I too separate from you? 
And I, I think about that story, and I love, it's in all four Gospels, but I love the story in John of feeding the 5,000. Here we have, it says that Jesus spoke until they were hungry. He did it on purpose. This is why preachers talk a long time until you're hungry. It's, we're just trying to be more like Jesus. It says he spoke till they were hungry. And there's 5,000, what you don't know this is that it says 5,000 men, there probably was probably, could be upwards to 20,000 people, including women and children. They'd followed Jesus, they'd heard his stories, and the disciples had found this little boy with five barley loaves and two fish, probably would have been the size of sardines. You gotta understand this, barley, it would have been little cakes, and they're poor man's bread. It wasn't like focaccia or anything like that. It was poor man's bread. And it was probably just enough to feed maybe him and maybe another person. And the little fish were meant basically just to flavor the bread. That's it. There wasn't a lot. But what did Jesus do? He prayed and he thanked God. And this is why I love John's story. Because we, we know that the disciples distributed it. But John focuses on Christ going to each person and giving them and dispensing the bread and the fish. And it says giving them like a father enough for them to be filled and with enough left over for 12 baskets full. And he reminds them of his care for them. And then we get, this, we get the, you know, the harshest words from Christ were for the religious leaders. Those who thought that they were holding on, they were doing everything right. But he said, listen, you worship me with your lips, but your heart is so far from me. You haven't been faithful to my character, to my word. And what you have is his own people who literally put him up on the cross. And what does he say? Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And you get this idea in the gospels that no matter how faithless we as humans were, God says, I promised you I would come and my word will stand true. And then you get the shepherd. And Jesus himself said this in John 10, a good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And what did Jesus do? He laid down his life for his sheep. And like a good shepherd, he gathers them to himself and says, here's the penalty for sin. Now watch me as I pay that penalty for you. I'm gonna pay that penalty for you and I'm gonna gather you like my children to me because I love you. And here you have Christ who comes into this tension and he reminds of him who he is. But I want us to notice something in John 1. Before Christ comes onto the scene, within that tension, there was a voice. Let's go to John 1 verse 19, if you don't mind. John chapter 1, verse 19 to 23, this is what it says. Now, this was John's testimony, speaking of John the Baptist. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, he said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. Hopefully you recognize these words. I am the voice of the one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. 
in the spiritual barrenness, in the wilderness that the Israelites were in, that the world was in, in that 400 years of silence comes a voice. A voice that says, now that I have your attention, would you now look to see your king who has come? His sole purpose was this, was to direct the people to their God. The sole purpose of John the Baptist was that, was to make straight the paths to the Lord. At this time, he was probably, he was the first voice that would have been heard in 400 years. And he had tons of people following him. I mean, multitudes were coming to him to be baptized. And it would have been really easy for John the Baptist to just been okay with that. But he knew his role, he knew his function, and it was this. To be the voice in the spiritual wilderness and say, look, your savior has finally come. The voice declared it, and immediately after, Christ came on the scene. But to be honest, this is how God's always chosen to work. You know, you think of the Old Testament, he used kings, prophets, priests. I mean, he even used a donkey. He even used a 12-year-old boy. You see, in the New Testament, he used normal fishermen. He used a murderer. He used regular, ordinary men and women to draw people's attention to God. This is God's MO. This is how he works. You know, today I find that in our culture, there's a lot of people living with intention in life, isn't there? I think all of us can think of someone in our workplace, maybe even in our family, in our circle of friends that live in deep tension. And if I can say a spiritual wilderness, a barrenness of the soul. Places where maybe their marriages are breaking up or they don't have a relation with the kids that they hope they would have. Maybe they're deeply struggling with their life and they don't know that their king has come. That salvation has come. So who's the voice? In Isaiah 40, I said there's two voices that it alludes to. The first voice was that of John the Baptist. The second voice that's alluded to is your voice. It's my voice. In the Hebrew, in Isaiah 40, there's a plurality to the voice that it's talking about. To anyone in the nation of God who trusts in God, They're meant to be the voice that calls out in that wilderness, behold, your king has come. See, here's why. Because each one of us, we wake up and we go to work and we do life in the tension that people live in every single day. We live in a culture where religion, it's a plurality of religion. You believe what you want to believe. I believe what I want to believe. And there is a deep longing to know what happens after this. How can I be secure in my eternity? There are people that we go to work with, like I said, have broken relationships. Maybe they have broken relationships. Those who've been abused and those who have been the abuser. We live in the midst of great tension, don't we? And God has chosen us In his story of unfolding salvation to humanity, he's chosen us 
to make him known. To be that voice in that wilderness that says, behold, your healer has come. Your God has come. Your salvation has come. See, as often as we read the Bible like it's Saskatchewan, we read the Bible like we're separate from the story. But what if I told you that it is your story as well? It's there to encourage you, to challenge you, but also remind you that you're part of his unfolding story of salvation. That there are people in our lives who need God. And I truly think that we're placed for this time, in this place specifically, to be his voice in their life. To draw their attention to the God who says, I have come. I've come to bind up your wounds, to heal the brokenhearted, to pick up your burdens, but most of all, to fill you spiritually, to bring from your death life. Here's what I want you to do tonight. This is how we're gonna respond tonight. I'd like you to close your eyes tonight. It's this really simple thing I'm gonna have you do. This is the, you know, the most I'm gonna get you to do tonight is just to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine, and I don't think this should be hard to imagine someone in your life who you know is in a state of great tension. Maybe they're in a place where they're in a spiritual wilderness. Maybe they don't know Christ. Or maybe they do, but they're in great tension. I want you to just picture them or picture their, the family, whoever you have in your mind. And let me ask you this question, what if? What if all of us believed and lived like God has purposely placed you in their plot line, placed you within their tension to like John the Baptist say, your salvation has come. Your God is near. He's not left you. Though your sin may be much, his grace is much more. You may feel like no one cares, but there's a God who cares deeply for you. Yes, you may have been faithless, but you know what? I know a God who is faithful. You may sense that maybe you don't have a good father to look up to, someone who cares for you in a rich and deep way, but you're my God, like a shepherd and like a dad, says, come, come to me. And my challenge for you this week is whoever you're imagining is this. If you don't already, to begin praying and asking God for the wisdom and the words and to ask God, how, how can I be part of your work? How can I be part of your story in their life? If you're here tonight and your eyes are closed and you don't know Christ, you don't know that God has come, you don't know that he has come to forgive you of your sin, to make you brand new, to care for you, that he, someone who says, I will never leave you or forsake you, I will continue to remain faithful to you. What if you imagined like the story of salvation is actually your story? That what if tonight God decided to use this service, the worship or the prayer time, or even myself, 
that he positioned you in this exact moment for you to hear the words of John the Baptist. Behold, your king has come. Your salvation has come. And so if that's you and you want to receive Christ in your heart, there's a few of us who will be here at the front. We'd love to pray with you after the service and explain to you what that is. But can my challenge be to all of you tonight is that you would leave this place understanding that exactly where you're at, it's on purpose. God has you among the people in your life on purpose. And your sole duty as a believer is this, is to know God and to make him known. Lord, I pray in my life and in all of our lives that you give us the wisdom, the grace to point people to you, Jesus. Like John the Baptist said, it doesn't become about us, it becomes about you. That our life would continually be shaped in a way that as we're transformed by your gospel, that it would transform others around us. Lord, I thank you that you've chosen to use us. Give us grace, give us wisdom. Help us to understand and to be sensitive to the stories in which we find our lives involved in. Help us to notice the story that you're unfolding and the lives of those around us and help us to be that voice that calls out in that wilderness, your salvation has come. We pray this in your name for our friends, our coworkers, for our city. Amen.